So there we go. Anyway, okay. So shall we do First Samuel? Okay, so here we are. We are we're at a big, big point in Samuel today. This is going to be awesome. So turn to 1 Samuel. We're just going to do chapter 15. Verse, I, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Y'all are so on top of things. Wow. Usually people are out there fumbling. Which book are we reading again now? Yeah. We're just going to, I always like to go back just a little bit because context is everything, lead-ins are everything, right? So look at the, thir- the last verse of chapter 15. Samuel's gone to his home. Saul's gone to, gone to his home. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Okay, cut scene. Yahweh, beginning of chapter 16. The Lord, Yahweh. Y'all know why what I'm doing there, right? Is everybody up to speed on Yahweh and the Lord? That, that funky small caps is actually underneath it, and the Hebrew is the name of God. The Tetragrammaton, if you want to get fancy. I like to get fancy once in a while. Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So, Bethlehem is a small place just south of Jerusalem. Short drive. Short drive. From, it is. I mean, today it's a short drive. Back then it was that, it's not that far. You and I could walk. Well, okay, you could walk it. <laughs> so, um, now, the, the thing I want you to pay attention to here is a couple of things. First of all, he's going to fill the horn with oil. So, the horn, you know, um, they're hollow, or they would make them hollow. I'm not sure which that is. They were are. They're hollow when they fall off. Okay, so unless they rip it off some cow's head, that's hollow, and they would fill it with oil. It's sort of the, like the Tupperware of the ancient world. And they would use it to carry oil. Now, why is he going to carry oil? Because oil was used for anointing. It was used medicinally. There's a passage in James talking about anointing with oil. It doesn't... It doesn't do anything medicinally, right? Um, But they didn't have much they could do. But anointing was a way of signifying kings. Kings were anointed. They were anointed with oil. And so Saul is going to take this horn filled with oil to go anoint a new king for Israel. Now this... and. Thus, a king could be called the anointed one, because kings were anointed. In Hebrew, the word for the anointed one is Mashiach, which comes into English as Messiah. And Mashiach in Hebrew is translated into Greek as Christos, which comes into English as Christ. 
So, King, Messiah, Messiah, Christ, they're all synonyms. They all are the same, basically the same word, idea. They're all a royal term. So that, of course, figures hugely when you come to understanding Jesus. You then understand that calling Jesus, calling Jesus, Jesus Christ, it isn't like a, Christ is not a last name. It's not a name at all. It's a title. Okay? And now God is sending Samuel to a man named Jesse of Bethlehem. Because one of his sons is going to be anointed um, king. So verse 2, But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Because Saul knows that he has been rejected as king. So if he gets word that Samuel is going to go anoint a new king, what's Saul's likely reaction going to be? Right? Remember, nobody but Saul and Samuel know about this whole um, God turning away from Saul, or Saul turning away from God, Saul's disobedience and, and, and um, God regretting that he had ever made Saul king. But Samuel, so Samuel has reason to be fearful of Saul. So God comes up with a plan. Yahweh said, take a heifer with you and say, and a heifer is like a calf. A young female calf. Okay, good. See, I'm glad you're here, Mona. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. So he's going to literally take a young female calf with him and when he gets to Bethlehem he's going to tell people I'm here to sacrifice to the Lord thereby being a cover story for what he's actually there to do right see this is like real life here isn't it you know why because it's real life right <laughs> take a heifer with you and say I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do you are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So, the one I indicate. This is going to be God's choice. Who's in charge here? God. God is sending Samuel. He told him to get the horn. He told him to get the oil. He told him to get the heifer. He gave him the cover story. Everything. This is God is running this show. And Samuel's just moving along like a leaf in the wind. True? Thoughts? Questions? Well, wisely, Samuel did what Yahweh said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders at the town trembled when they met him. They asked him, do you come in peace? Do you think they're afraid of Samuel? They're afraid of Saul. They're afraid that Samuel and Saul are on the outs and it's going to be trouble and Saul's going to come looking for Samuel and this little town of Bethlehem's going to get caught up in everything and you know they have this nice little quiet countryside life there in Bethlehem that they don't want to have disturbed <clears throat> at all do you come in peace and Samuel said yes in peace I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. 
So consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. That means consecrate yourself. To consecrate something is to make it, is to make it holy, to make it ready. This would be <laughs> washing is the classic way, okay? Uh, maybe putting on <laughs> clean clothes. <laughs> you know, it's a different world than ours. So consecrate yourselves, make yourselves ready. Um, for this. This is not, it's not a, to sacrifice this heifer to God is not a casual thing. It is a serious thing. Um, the priestly system of, of sacrifices is, sometimes I call it a, like a splint. You know what a splint, like you have a broken leg and, and you have a splint on it to enable you to get around? That's kind of what I think the priestly system and the sacrifices are about. The relationship between God and the humans is broken. Between God and the Israelites is broken. And the, the priestly system and the sacrifices are helping to hold it together, but they're not the healing. Right? They're not the healing. They aren't the end deal. They're just, they're just a necessary... Um, They're just a necessary system, a necessary contraption to hold so that these people can exist with God until such time as healing occurs. And in the story of these people and their descendants, when does that healing occur? Jesus. Jesus. And when in the course of Jesus' life does that healing occur? In the crucifixion. I'm sorry, I sleep with the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> if you couldn't hear Patty, she said, I'm sorry, I sleep with the teacher. No, she's just been in my classes for 20 years. Patty, let somebody else answer. So, <laughs> so, what, what, this is like a quiz. What signifies at the crucifixion this healing? Y'all know the answer? I know, I know you know the answer. I know you do. I know you do. Okay, Patty, answer it. Yes, when the curtain's ripped in two. Because in the temple, right? In, in, in the temple. Yeah, see, teacher's pet. In the temple. Better <laughs> be. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so in the temple, there's a curtain that separates the, gosh, I, I fear that someday I'm going to have a lot to answer for with God, but separates, separates God's living room because you've got the candelabra, the table with the bread on it and stuff from the holiest of holies behind it. And it signifies this separation. Only the high priest can go behind that curtain. The high priest can only do it one time a year to make atonement for the sins of Israel. That's what Yom Kippur is that you hear about. So when that curtain in the temple in Jerusalem is torn in two, when Jesus passes on the cross, it is signifying that that separation between the Israelites and God, and hence humanity and God, is now past. That healing has come. That separation is past. 
So anyway, yeah, very good. Okay, so, so, so the question is, well, what about the sacrifices that they did after Jesus' death and resurrection? So for the Jewish priesthood in Jerusalem, after Jesus' death and resurrection, everything went on as before. They just would have replaced the curtain. They had to replace it before. Those things aren't going to last forever. So they replaced the curtain, and things went on as before because they did not come to Jesus, right? And so it went on as before until what? There we go. And you're not even Patty. Very good. Until <laughs> <laughs> the Romans destroyed the temple. Only, let's call it 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So there were many peoples alive at Jesus' death and resurrection who saw the temple destroyed. And the temple was destroyed vindicating Jesus because when if you remember one of the key events in the week leading to Jesus's crucifixion he charges into the temple and turns the table tables over and says you've turned this into a den of thieves a house of robbers right that is invoking Jeremiah you could turn to Jeremiah 6 and find exactly the same words and about 40 years after Jeremiah pronounced God's judgment on the temple, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. About 40 years after Jesus pronounced judgment on the temple, it was destroyed by the Romans and has never been rebuilt. So the priestly system came to a complete and utter halt. And for the Christians, we have writings like the book of Hebrews, which surveys that territory and says, well, we don't need sacrifices anymore. Could any sacrifice be higher or more important or more valuable than Jesus' sacrifice of himself for us? We don't need priests anymore. Could we have a priest that's more significant or higher than Jesus? No. That's what the book of Hebrews basically is. It is totally grounded in the Old Testament and the priestly systems. That's why for many Christians, a lot of Hebrews, the pages are still painted together when you know, put the gold right there, because it's just, most Christians don't know their Old Testament very much. But you guys do, and you're gonna know it better when we finish this book, <laughs> by golly. <laughs> okay, anything else? Okay. So. Let's go back to verse 5. Samuel replied, Yes, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So everybody's been made ready. That's all you have to think. They've all been made ready for this. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Presumably the firstborn and thought, surely Yahweh's anointed stands here before the Lord. Look at him. He's tall, he's strong, he's good looking. Look at this. He's Gaston again. But the Lord said to Samuel, ah, 
Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Which just means he's not the one. I mean, it's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not, you know, being mean to Eliab. He's just not the one. Yeah, now look at this next verse. This famous verse. If you mark your Bibles, this is the verse to mark. Yahweh does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. As should we all. As should we all. The important thing about a person is their heart, their character. Not how tall they are, how much gray hair they might have, how many extra pounds they might carry. <laughs> right? You've got to look at the heart. It's what God looks at. So it's a very, very famous, very well-known verse um, because the Saul passage and this Eliab passage are both written in such a way as to draw you to the things that we humans pay attention to. He's tall. She's tall. Good looking. Got the right hair. All that stuff, you know? Nope. Nope, God looks at the heart. Remember, and God has already said, I'm going to find a man after my own heart. And I explained to you then that that phrase is often misunderstood. I misunderstood it for a long time. It's not saying that David's a man who has the character of God. It's saying that David will be the one that God wants. That's what it means. Because if you, if you, if you try to see David as the one who has a heart just like God's, your mind is going to blow apart as we go through the stories of David. Okay? Well, verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, Hmm, Yahweh hasn't chosen this one either. Hmm. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nope. Nor has Yahweh chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, Yahweh hasn't chosen any of these. So we asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? <laughs> you got more to show me? Uh, we're, we're, we're 0 for 7 right now. We are 0 for 7. Jesse answered, well, there is still the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. Now, tending sheep was in the social world, it was down like at the bottom. Sheep herders were at the bottom. Tending sheep would sometimes be left to women or teenagers. It just wasn't something that a proper man did. So this, Jesse and his sons, they all leave it to the kid. Now do we know how old David is? We don't really know how David is, but everyone, everyone sees him as young. And given lives as lives were arranged in that world. I'm going to call him, a, I think he's probably a teenager. 
Okay? Not, not a little kid. He's a teenager. Because the other thing sheep herders would have to do is they would have to protect the sheep from wolves and those kind of things. Okay? So Samuel said, send for him. This youngest who is not named yet, right? Send for him, the youngest. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he, Jesse, I presume, sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health. Of course, he's out there with the sheep all the time. He's out there in the outdoors getting the tan and all the rest of it right. Had a fine appearance. And to throw in something extra, handsome features. Right? Right? He's healthy looking. He's a handsome guy. Now you're thinking, well, what does this matter? God just says he looks at the heart. Well, who does the appearance... Here's the thought, here's the thought for you. To whom does the appearance matter? The people. So he, 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 look, he, he, look, he looks enough like somebody that people would follow. How about that? Okay. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then Yahweh said, rise and anoint him. This is to Samuel. He says, Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, we don't have a good picture, full picture of this scene. Okay? Is everybody there? Have the other sons gone on to do other things? Do they see what's happening? Do they understand what's happening? Does Jesse see it? It's written in such a way that it's a little bit unclear exactly who is there. Because it will turn out to be kind of a secret thing between Samuel, God, and David. So, though the text is silent, if I had to make my guess, I would say in the space of time, because it, it's not like David was out in the backyard with the sheep, right? He wasn't out by the pool. He was off somewhere with the sheep, so it took a while to go get him. So, I'm guessing when he comes, this is gonna boil down to maybe Jesse, but at least for sure, Samuel and David, of course. So the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. Okay, Scott, what were you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> I, I prepared for this today and I still forgot that. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. So, okay. They must be really good at keeping their mouth shut, as you will see. <laughs> yes, honey? No, I just said it is true what you said, because no one, no one ever spreads this around. This Nobody, no. Seemingly not. Maybe. Might have been killed if they had spread the word around. I don't know. We'll see as it goes on, because you have this whole story with Saul and David where there's this tension because... Does Saul understand who David is? Does David under, really understand what's happening? So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. 
Samuel then went to Ramah. So this spirit of the Lord. So some translations will use a capital S, some won't use a capital S. The spirit of the Lord here functions as being in the one who is sort of God's man, God's choice, because the Spirit of the Lord has left Saul, and now the Spirit of the Lord is upon David. And it's a way, I think, of signifying that David is blessed by God, um, empowered by God, I don't see any reason to, I'm being asked whether David's a black sheep. I mean, he's just the youngest, you know, so you know how the, he's the youngest of eight, eight sons, right? Because he saw seven and then they bring him David. So he's the youngest of eight brothers. So there wasn't even a bride for him. Anybody get that? Am I the only one? <laughs> it was such a bad joke. Y'all are just pouring, you're, pity, you're pitying me at this point. Pitying me. Okay, so I, I don't, he's not a black sheep, he's just the youngest, right? Just the youngest um, of them all. But it does say something, that there's this, there's this theme in scripture of God not choosing the obvious, right? Abraham. Abraham is Isaac, Abraham's firstborn son? No. The name of Isaac's firstborn son, Abraham's firstborn son is Ishmael. Is Jacob Isaac's firstborn son? The answer is no, exactly, it's, it's Esau. So you can go through scripture and, and look at these, this theme of second sons, this theme of the, 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 the unexpected. And here, David, the little sheep herder, from out in the back, he is unexpected in this story, but that's God's way, right? Um, God's way often should surprise us because it's God way, God's way, not our way. Um, the world, gosh, sadly, um, Prince Harry, right? Is he the second one? Prince Harry wrote a book in which he titled it Spare thinking of himself as a spare, as a spare for his older brother, just in case. But that's not the biblical way of seeing these things. The biblical way is that there are all the, it's the stories of these second sons that God's promise is passed through. So it's, um, I always thought that was a sad title to Harry's book, to think of himself as a spare. But David is now anointed. So, in God's eyes, who is the king of Israel? David or Saul? David. Saul has rejected, I mean, God has rejected Saul. God regretted ever making Saul king. David has now been anointed. Yes, Samuel is the one who applies the oil, but it is God who has been in charge of everything that, that's happened. David is God's choice, God's choice, God's choice. And um, 
Is he seen as king by the people? I found this on the web. <laughs> She's trying to answer. She wants to compete with Patty and Jim, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so, oh man. So, all right. So, do the people, do the people recognize David as Saul's successor? No. And it will be a very long time before that happens. That's where all the tension in the coming chapters is going to come from. But for now, David's anointed. We know what the truth is. Okay? So any questions about this that I can help with? Yes. 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 There's a huge amount of difference, significance and indifference there. Where do you fall in that? Was David filled with the Spirit at that point? As a Christian, I would tend to see it as the Spirit given to David as the capital S Spirit of the Lord. But understanding the Hebrews, they don't even have capitals in their language, okay? As the Greeks didn't capital have capitals. So it's a fair question to ask, but I will tend to see God's hand being especially with David as, as God being especially present with David, which is a way of saying that the Holy Spirit is with God, is with David, because the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. But, but we still have to understand that this is long before Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit forms an entire church and body of Christ and, and, and believers in Jesus are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is long before, before all of that. And, there are various ways in the Old Testament that we see the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, I think. Um, Shekinah is the Hebrew word for the presence of God, which is used sometimes. Lady Wisdom is another way to, that's in which you see God being present with people. Um, uh, in Isaiah, like chapter 64, it's actually written the Holy Spirit. Okay. So as a Christian, that's how I see it. But it, because it's these are Jewish writings, you know, some will not capitalize it. I'm not sure it's capitalized in the NRSV, maybe just in the NIV. Yeah. Yes. I don't understand why. I mean, I know Saul was not, I mean, he wasn't, didn't like Saul, but I don't understand about the, the spirit. It says... Uh, well, let, which, which chapter and verse are we in? Fourteen. Okay. Okay. 
Okay, we haven't got, okay, we haven't, just let me start and then, then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that, okay? Okay, so I think we're at verse 14 here in chapter 15, right? So let's just plunge on ahead. Now, the Spirit of the Lord, go back to the question, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Evil. So evil means malevolent. It could be impure, unclean. Um, and what do we make of this? You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion. First of all, um, Saul has placed himself, placed himself apart from God. Saul did that. Saul was disobedient at least twice um, that we saw. Um, what's going to happen is that Saul is going to sink deeper and deeper into what today we would call depression and darkness, dispiritedness. Um, in the ancient world, all of that would be seen any that kind of mental problem would be seen as coming from some sort of dark spirit, evil spirit, impure spirit, a clean spirit, some sort of spirit from the other side of the veil and typically those things for the ancients would be coming from God because God is the first cause of all things. Um, My way of saying this is, it's an ancient way of describing Saul's alienation from God. It is Saul who is, I, I like the word alienation because it is a separation um, of genuine apartness. Okay, like I have a son who's living in Asheville. He's living in Asheville. I don't see him that much, but it's not like we're alienated one from another. We're just separated right now in that geographic sense. But to be alienated is to feel, is to be separated, but also to be utterly, utterly apart. And that's what Saul has done, is to alienate himself from God. So, with all that said, you can kind of make your own choice. When you read commentaries and other writings on these, this is the kind of place where people will spend time offering their way of, of understanding this. I, um, I like that idea of Saul being increasingly alienated from God and the darkness sort of descending upon him. Part because I think we live in a world in which increasing numbers of people have alienated themselves from God, and why should we be surprised by the consequences of that? And so why would Saul be surprised by the consequences of alienating himself from God? So maybe that's hopeful, maybe it's not. Okay? But the, you know, the ancient people, they wouldn't be troubled by this verse. I mean, God does what God does. 
Verse 15, Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, an impure spirit from God is tormenting you. There's something really wrong with you, Saul. You know, you're sleeping 23 hours a day. You're moping around. You're not being king. That's what we're talking about here. He's feeling... <clears throat> he's feeling... To, Saul is experiencing something that we would call today a mental illness. That's what's happening to him. That's, what, that's the symptoms that, that Saul is experiencing. So they say to him, okay, so let our Lord, as in Saul, Saul, command, let our Lord, you Saul, command his servants, your servant Saul, here to search for someone who can play the lyre. L-Y-R-E, a musical instrument. Stringed, right? Um, he will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. Okay, so, what's the picture again? That Saul is experiencing these bouts of darkness, these bouts of depression, these bouts of sadness. Why? Be for me, because he has alienated himself from God. And there are consequences to that. He chose, he chose to disobey God. And his servants say, well, let's play some music. Maybe music will, will help. Because music is helpful in a lot of ways, right? I think for people. And they don't have much else to offer him. They don't have any therapists to send them to. They don't have any medications to offer them. No pick-me-ups. They can't even offer them caffeine. And so when Saul is sinking into these dark periods, the musician is going to play, play the music and maybe that'll kind of pick up, we would call it pick up Saul's spirits. So Saul said to his attendants, fine, find somebody who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, now I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man. See what people are interested in, right? And Yahweh is with him. Hmm, okay. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. So he's going to be a bringer of gifts and things. He's going to go to the, what's he going to? He's going to the royal court. This is the king of the 12 tribes. That's who Saul is. He's probably got a throne of some kind. He's got, a, he's got various courtiers and stuff that attend to him. And now David's going to go join the royal court as what? The royal musician <laughs> to play the lyre. So David came to Saul and entered his service. 
And here, see, this is where the irony is coming in, right? So Saul is king in the eyes of the people, but David's the true king. And now Saul has asked for David, his successor, to come in and be part of the royal court, to be Saul's servant. Wow. Wow. You know, because waiting in the wings, who, is, who, who would you suppose is to be the successor to Saul? His son Jonathan, who will end up having a really close relationship with David. But for now, the irony here is that young David, now anointed by God as king of Israel, is coming to serve whom? The king of Israel. Oh, man, this is drama. <laughs> okay? So, verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul liked him very much. That's a line to remember. It's a line to remember. Saul liked David very much. There's a lot of things that's going to happen going forward, and it's a line to come back to. Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. He's not only the royal musician, he has this close enough to carry and, and look after and clean and take care of Saul's fighting armor. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Right? If we didn't know what we know about David, this would all be very touching. Because of what we do know, it's deeply poignant. Wow, wow. Verse 23. So whenever the Spirit from God, notice in the NIV even, which is a conservatively oriented translation, we are now working from the lowercase s. Okay? And I would submit it's because the translators themselves struggle with the question I was asked earlier, right? Right? Because we tend to read back in a Christian view, but then again, these are Hebrew writings and it's the Old Testament, it's long ago, and they have their ways of speaking of things and understanding things um, that aren't ours now, that we don't bring to the Bible now. But whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, this is the Spirit that's depressing him, David would take up his lyre and he would play. Then relief would come to Saul. He liked the music. Music picked him up. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. His, his soul is brightened, right? You might, I, I personally think you, you might write it that way. His soul is brightened. Um, he's, he's better. The, but the poignant part to me is when we know that, that in simple terms, Saul liked him very much. And when we come back together, we're going to stop here because we do not want to start the next story. The next story is the story of, um, well, I tell you what, actually, I don't think I can do David and Goliath in one week. So is it okay if I just go and use the rest of the time today? Sure it is. I'm in charge. <laughs> <laughs> 
I misread the clock. I thought we were much closer to 115, but let's just go a little ways into the story. I got maps and things. Anyway, Charles. Quick question. Yeah. Going back to verse 18. Verse 18. There might be some time gap, but I don't think it's a very long time gap. Consider who men are. How old is Joseph? In the, in, in the how old is Joseph when he marries Mary? I mean, for us, you got to get out of your teens. Well, these days, you talk to twenty-eight year olds. They don't even want to do adulting yet. So, so. But in this world, if you took a if you took a, a guy who was seventeen or eighteen years old, he's a man. I mean, I mean that's what a bar mitzvah is, right? Most cultures have a crossing from childhood into manhood for men. Um, and now there are the same kind of things for women. But for, for the, um, the, in Africa, go around the culture, uh, this time to mark leaving childhood and going to manhood. And it's typically said in the early teens, 13, 14, somewhere in there. So yeah, and he's a warrior, at least because he has been protecting the sheep. And we are going to see that he does have some skills. Okay, so chapter 17. Now, the Philistines are here on the west coast. <laughs> right? On the west coast, yeah. Gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Now, this area is. I have another little map here. It's just west of Bethlehem. So this is the area we're talking about right here. And what we're going to end up with is the Israelite army on the northern side of the wadi. I'll explain in a moment what a wadi is. And the Philistine army on sort of the southern side. So call it northeast and southwest. In a place called the Valley of Elah. A Valley of Elah. E-L-A-H. There's a movie. The Valley of Elah. Um, when, one time when we were in Israel, we made the drive from Ashdod to Jerusalem and drove right through the Valley of Elah. And the guide stood up at the front of the bus and explained to us that that's what we were doing. So there's a hillside here, right? There's some hills here, and that's what the armies would do. They would occupy positions opposite one another. A wadi is um, today, here in the U.S., my, basic, my, my biggest experience with them is in Arizona, where we call them washes. A wash is a place where there's, it's like a dry creek bed. And it was dry almost all the time until the rain came, and then it would create a flood. And I remember moving to Phoenix and driving along, and I'd get the road would go down into the wash and then up the other side, and there would be a depth gauge. So you could see how deep the water was. And sometimes it's incredibly deep. I figure they must have more bridges there now. But anyway, that's what a wadi is. Dry for much of the year. It is, a wadi is where, um, 
Elijah is sent by God after he confronts Ahab. Awadi figures into the last, into the parable that closes the Sermon on the Mount. The man who builds his house on rock versus on sand. So that is basically the geography that we're looking at. And typically, in keeping with ancient warfare, the two armies would take positions opposing each other with a valley or a creek or, in this case, a white, something between them. And this is the valley of Elah. So verse 2, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. It's all very helpful. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. Now armies would have great champions who would, who would fight and lead the armies and would sometimes do really a, a, a conflict between the champions would constitute the conflict between the armies. Um, how many have you have ever seen the movie Maybe it's Troy with Brad Pitt. What was that? Yeah. Was that the name of the movie? Troy or Achilles? Troy? When he had those skinny little calves? Yeah. <laughs> so that opens with the battle of two champions. They get, these two champions are going to come and they're going to fight and that's going to settle the whole thing. Right? So the Philistines have such a champion that they are going to put out in front of their army. And his name is Goliath. He is from the city of Gath. There are five Philistine cities. I'll bring that map back next week. There are five Philistine cities that figure in the stories going forward. Gath is one of them. Ekron's another one. There's five of them. <coughs> and Gath, Gath is one of them. And Goliath is from Gath. And he is tall. His height in the NIV is six cubits in a span, about nine feet. Whoa! He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves. Those are the shin protectors. You seen the boys wear in soccer? Not just boys, but men and women do in soccer to protect their shins. That's what those are. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point alone weighed 600 shekels, which is about 15 pounds. His shield bearer went on ahead of him. So he is this enormous figure, tall. Maybe there's some hyperbole involved, maybe not, I don't know, but he's tall, and he's big, and he's terrifying. This is a world in which people are shorter than we are now. Right? They are. I remember going to Jamaica one time on, on a trip and visiting some, I don't know, whatever, and looking at the beds like the, that people slept in, they're all dang short. <laughs> because people were shorter 200 years ago. Yeah. We benefit from nutrition, clean water, all kinds of things that make us 
taller and stronger. So there's a fascinating book that you might want to read by Malcolm Gladwell about the story of David and Goliath in which he tries to medically understand Goliath and medically determine what Goliath's condition is that would make him so tall, so big, and so dang slow, slow, because he's no Brad Pitt. He's not leaping across the sky, coming down, twirling his little whatever. That's not <laughs> his, his knife, I mean, that's what I mean, his knife, okay? Now, so when we come back next week, we will um, look at the confrontation between Goliath and David. And there's a lot more to it than typically is told. There's this, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. There are parts of it that are almost comic um, about Saul being involved in this. And it's just, we'll take our time. Maybe we'll finish it next week. I don't know. It's a great, great story. Um, so much, the writer of this story has taken such great care with it that we should do as well. So, before, we, before I close this in prayer, I want to lift up Diana, um, who is probably, well, can I say she's losing her fight with glioplastoma? She is. And we want to lift her up here um, as she nears the end of this fight, and especially her family and her daughters who are struggling with this. Um, it just came out of the blue, you know, for, for someone who is, was always otherwise fit and, fit and ready. So we want to remember Diana and pray God's comfort on her and on her family. So would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful um, that you brought us here today. We do lift up Diana. We lift up all those who are in need of comfort and strength. All those who are in need of healing this. We, we do live between the times when the kingdom of God has come already, and, but not yet. When it's present and yet is still coming. A world still filled with brokenness and sin and pain. But we are Easter people. The darkness has not won. It did not win. It does not win now. It will not win. We are grateful for your love. We're grateful for your rescue of us all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.